are few investment companies who invest in solo founders. Mm. Yeah. They want a team. They want to understand that the collective experience and expertise of a team is going to increase their chances of ROI on any investment that they make. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. And on this episode, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Dawn Haynes. Dawn, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my honor. Thank you for inviting me. So Dawn, if 30 seconds, 60 seconds for you to explain who you are, what you do, so everyone knows who they're listening to, let us have it. Um, Yeah, so currently I'm the CEO of Stardust Studio. Stardust Studio is the only early stage tech startup accelerator in Central Florida. Um, And uh, as of the 1st of January, I have just accepted the role of president of the Orlando Tech community. It is a membership community that brings all the different stakeholder groups of the Central Florida tech ecosystem together. Amazing. That's that's great, Dawn. And congrats on the the new position. Thank you. And for those who are listening right now, you may realize, despite the amazing Orlando and Florida connectivity, the British accent. So tell us a bit about that journey and, and also fundamentally, what do you see as the big differences between the startup ecosystem in the UK and the US or, or Florida? Um, so yes, I am clearly not from originally from the US. I have lived in the US for 37 years and um, actually went to the US as a regional director for British Airways. So back in 1987, I moved to the US. Um, I have been very blessed to be involved with technology, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, and um, innovation in general for most of my 40-year career. Um, I think that in today's environment, the one thing that I would say that I um, have noticed is that I believe that the large corporations in England and Europe as a whole, I think tend to be that much more receptive to working with startups to solve problems that they have internally in their large organizations in a very innovative entrepreneurial fashion. And I think that maybe that's because they understand that they don't necessarily have either the resources to be able to put on solving those problems um, and or because they are very large, they don't have the dynamism and the agility to be able to do what they need to do quickly to solve the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's a really, really interesting one because what we see in the UK and with Connected is, you know, we're, we're fortunate to be working with some fantastic corporate uh, enterprise customers and, and partners who do really value that. And it was surprising to hear the way you break it down because for me, the startup ecosystem in the US is, you know, more mature than it is in the UK. and. From what I understand, people have been investing in venture more seriously since, you know, really the 80s versus probably the 2000s here. Um, So it was interesting to see that that corporates haven't quite caught up in that way. And I do think that, you know, and I don't want to generalize because you get everything on the entire spectrum no matter where you are. Um, And I think that depending on where you are geographically in the U.S., you find... Uh, larger organizations more connected into the ecosystem. 
But I do think that for a lot of large businesses in the US, they feel like they have the resources, the expertise, the experience mm. internally. And therefore, there mm. is more of a tendency to be siloed. Um, and I hate to use the word territorial, but I do think that there is a tendency to think that if they give away any of the information that somehow they're losing, mm -hmm. as opposed to creating situations where there's a win-win. Mm. Um, because, you know, for me, and obviously I am biased because I work in the tech ecosystem, I think that the value in being able to bring in new ways of thinking, new ways of approaching a uh, a, a topic, a challenge, a problem, when you've got people outside bringing in that fresh perspective, you really do get um, a, a much broader way of approaching a challenge and a problem. And for those large businesses, they've got a team that is not restricted by the operating environment within their large organization so that they can go off and do these very entrepreneurial um, approaches. Mm -hmm. They've got an opportunity to create either a strategic partnership and for a lot of those large companies, they're potentially even creating an acquisition opportunity down the road. So, you know, and for the startups, they've now got a solid strategic customer yeah. to actually start their business which is beneficial on both sides yeah massively massively i think it can be a total game changer for an early stage startup to be able to have the validation potentially the revenue but even just to go through that process with what would eventually be an icp for them um is massively valuable at, at an early stage but yes if you're a technology also an enterprise company looking at a technology technological solution for a, a internal problem that you're having and you can acquire something before it gets to a, a stage where acquisition would be difficult you know again uh, amazing solution absolutely and i think you know and i think one of the big uh, one of the biggest um, opportunities there and benefits that people don't see is that those early stage founders having the connection into an enterprise level organization with some of the experience and the expertise at a senior level. Mm -hmm. You've even got people who in in the project that they're doing offer advice, advising and coaching to the progression of that startup. And that happens, you know, I mean, it just happens organically. It's not done as a, a as a formal setup, yeah. but the value that is given to actually make those startups, you know, that much more solid, robust and successful, you know, everybody wins mm. in that situation. Yeah, 100% uh, a rising tide lifting all boats. Correct. And, and it's interesting because you very kindly um, offered to, to uh, host myself and Oscar at the Starter Studio Demo Day yeah. in Orlando, probably about a month ago now. Yes, yeah, about almost exactly. Yeah, time flies. Well, does it feel like a long time? <laughs> it I don't does, know. Yeah. It's, it's, when you get through that sort of Christmas New Year period, it's just no one's Everything got an idea what day it is no. anymore. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting to see the level of collaboration there between the different organizations and one of the the words that that one of the phrases people kept on using with me was just you know the amount of signposting going on within the ecosystem saying you know we like what you're doing we wish we could help you but actually 
it's not something that we necessarily do, but our friends over at X do this. And I thought considering, you know, especially you're talking about, you know, within the state, how much collaboration there was. And when I compare it to how I assess the ecosystem to be a bit in the UK where the feeling might be, well, you know, we're competing over quite a small area and therefore, you know, it's a, a bit more territorial uh, in that way. Uh, I thought it was amazing to see the amount of collaboration going on in Florida. And, you know, what, why is that a Florida thing? Is that a US thing? How, how do you see that? So I think if you take a look at all of the major tech hubs around the US, I think you will see that level of connection and collaboration going on. And mm -hmm. I think that it is what sets the uh, locations, that the cities that are recognized as tech hubs. So, you know, obviously everybody thinks of Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. but if you think of Boston and you think of New York, uh, Pittsburgh, you look at Austin, you look at Denver. So, you know, those as being some of the recognized tech hubs, I think it is what has made them successful. Because, you know, for us with what we're doing in Central Florida, to be able to be a, a recognized startup community, you want to create an environment where there's no wrong front door. Mm. So it's you. We, we should never leave entrepreneurs um, at it's the luck of the draw depending on who you first get connected to. Right. If you can create a thriving, robust ecosystem that is operating on a really healthy basis, it doesn't matter where you start as an entrepreneur or who you are as an entrepreneur. You should have access to the entire ecosystem mm -hmm. because no matter who you start with, they know who else is out there and can help very specifically mm -hmm. for that particular startup. So when I joined the ecosystem, it, it'll be two years in April, I recognize that there were a lot, almost all the pieces are there in Central Florida. It's about connecting them. Because if truly we want to be an you know, a, a region, mm -hmm. we want to be recognized for being really supportive of our entrepreneurs and that it's a great place to start a tech business, we have to make sure that when people are coming to Central Florida to, to start their tech businesses, that they've got access to all of the resources, no matter who they first get connected to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the driving force around all the work that we are doing to build our ecosystem is to recognize who all of the players are in each one of the seven stakeholder categories that are really interested and passionate about building businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and ensuring that everybody connected in that ecosystem understand who all of the players are and where their strengths are and how they help mm -hmm. the support and the growth and the progress of a startup. Yeah, I think that's that's um, really great to get that, that breakdown and makes total sense. So lots of you know people with amazing goodwill, wanting to support, wanting to support entrepreneurs, wanting to help them get to the next stage in their journey. Lots of these organizations are, are non-profit, as you said. So what are the drivers? You know, what, what drives the people involved with these organizations to say, 
you know, we're not necessarily getting a traditional upside, which you might if you're working in other parts of the venture ecosystem, uh, even as a you know venture scout, whatever it might be, or you might get some carry. Um, what is it that drives you guys to say, yeah, we want to do this, we want to make things better, we want to make this a bigger hub? You know, what what's the what's the the thing that really allows you to to dedicate? And I know how much you do, you know, yourself in that way to this mission. You know, at the end of the day, a startup ecosystem is actually an economic development driver Mm -hmm. for any region. So I think in central Florida, one of the the things that people are passionate about, you know, if I I say central Florida or Orlando to anybody around the world, the first thing that they think of is Disney, Disney, right? So... But what people don't know is that for as long as Disney has been around, we've also had a thriving tech ecosystem in and around simulation, modeling, and training. Mm. It drives as much for our economy in our region as hospitality does. Wow. It's been there for 50 years, and it is the largest in the world. So it it is held up. And the reason that a lot of people are not aware of it is that a lot of that modeling simulation and training is done for our Department of Defense. So it's Mm. actually a lot of work with the military. So not exactly publicized. So it's not hugely publicized, although I've just done it, right? Um, (laughs) But but we've, we've had this amazing technology base. And I think that you know, all the powers that be, and this means these are our government officials as well as the people who work in technology and work in the corporate arena, want Central Florida to be known for something beyond just Disney World, mm-hmm. Universal Studios, mm-hmm. and our hospitality mm-hmm. um, for the reason of being able to attract startups people who work in technology so that we are continuing to elevate the talent that we have in and around Orlando. You know, we have have five major universities and then some Mm -hmm. that are all graduating people um, with technology expertise Um, And for a lot of those graduates, they're not actually fully aware of how they've got access to jobs Mm -hmm. and a career path in and around Central Florida or Florida as a whole. So they leave. Mm. And, And we want to be able to do something that shows them and gets them connected into that career pathway so we don't end up with a brain drain for no reason at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, because then you become a feeder system for other for ecosystems. For other places, yeah, correct. Yeah, okay, no, that makes total sense. But the, uh, and so if you can actually get a, a, an ecosystem working and thriving, mm. it also attracts businesses because they realize that they've got access to these highly skilled graduates that are coming out with the technology expertise that they need well now there's a reason to locate whether or not it's their head office Mm -hmm. or whether or not it's a subsidiary office or you know 
there is a reason and a good reason to be able to come to Central Florida. That makes total sense. And for the people who are doing that incredibly difficult work at the first level, the startup level, who are seeing that vision uh, in terms of the benefit to the to, to the, the wider region, does that trickle back around to them? You know, or is that just like a, a passion thing? Um, I think. So I think that there's a lot of people who are involved in our really early stage startup ecosystem that are genuinely passionate mm-hmm. about helping entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. It's why we it's it's paying You'd it have for, to be to do this, right? right? It's <laughs> paying it forward. Yeah. So even if I take Starter Studio as an example and 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 we're not a unique example, but you know we're a, a, an example. Our core team of five people, we've got over 200 years of experience in technology, innovation, entrepreneurship that we bring to the table to to be able to support these really early stage founders and then make sure that they get, get connected to the right resources. So everything that we do is pre-seed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about being able to get people to that point with all of the learning that they need to be successful to go to the next stage Mm -hmm. because so much of the foundational work that happens to be successful in entrepreneurship happens really early and if you miss that opportunity for that learning it you know it's kind of like you've got a swiss cheese Mm. there's lots and lots of holes you know and or you're building a house of cards and with the first challenge it's all going to collapse but we also need those next those resources to be able to hand people off to for the next stage of yeah. development, which is why, you know, earlier we were talking about the incubator mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. in Florida and how important that is, because depending on the technology, somebody could be going into an incubator for three, four or five years to be able to realize the development of their deeper technology before they're at a point for a prototype. Mm. So it's actually about juggling the phases of development of each entrepreneurial startup dependent on what it is that they need. So a one, you cannot have a one-size-fits-all mentality when you come at these early stage companies because everybody needs something different. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why it's so important that you have people who do genuinely care because when you do see people trying to create their one size fits all, it inevitably leads to um, disappointment. And, it does. Yeah, and, and, and it doesn't do justice to people, you know, to entrepreneurs who are putting their blood, sweat, tears, emotions, everything else in. Um, so yeah, it, it requires that level of passion to have that level of, of care. And I think, you know, and I think that the other thing as well is that with all of the work that we do as entrepreneurial support organizations, without exception, they are nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Because the bottom line for our organizations is the success of the entrepreneurial startup. It is not about our success. It is about how do we make sure that we're providing everything that we can Mm -hmm. to those entrepreneurs. So as long as the entrepreneur coming in is receptive and open to that learning, to that coaching, 
to having subject matter expert advisors around mm -hmm. them, then we'll go to the ends of the earth for those mm -hmm. entrepreneurs to ensure that they get the support they need to be successful. When you get people who come into any of the programs, you know, I mean, there's a, a whole host of us that are there offering resources and somebody is not open to coaching, then they're, they're never going to progress through the system yeah. as well because, you know, people will quite rightly turn around and say, well, my time and energy and effort and passion the, is yeah. better off being spent with somebody that actually is like, oh my God, tell me, help me, learn. I don't know all of the answers. I've never done this before. I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll do anything for people who do that. And so many of us, I think, that are involved in this support we've got experience and expertise and we're paying it forward because there's no point in in accumulating knowledge and understanding and expertise in what it is that you do if you're not willing to share it with somebody uh, 100%. and everybody right yeah and we all benefit from that and we learn you know i learn from the entrepreneurs that i work with you know it's it's really fun learning about all of this new technology mm -hmm. and how it helps and how that supports everything else so you know it really is a it's a two-way street it's not it's not all in one direction. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many great things you mentioned there. I think the first thing that, that really sticks out to me, and this is an amazing lesson for anyone running organizations or, or ecosystems, is uh, alignment of incentives, right? If, you, if, you're, if your organization was not incentivized by these successful outcomes for these startups, then you can start having things not pointing in the same direction. If you're, if you're going to have the most seamless and smooth way of, of functioning as an organizational structure or an ecosystem structure, you've got to all be incentivized by the same outcomes. Correct. So, and actually so have the that impact yeah. as your outcome. Exactly. Right? So everybody has got to be, everybody's got to be working in the same direction. So if you look at the pillars of a collective impact model, mm -hmm. It starts with a shared, accepted, acknowledged vision mm. for the impact. So it's not the transactional things, right? It is actually what is the impact mm. that we want to have in our community, in our region, whatever that might be. And then what are the things that you need to be doing together to be able to get it there. The difference between collaboration and a collective impact model. Collaboration tends to be around a project, a specific project. Mm -hmm. Collective impact, it's the work that you do on a daily basis that comes together to act. So you're not changing what you're doing. Mm. It is what you are doing that comes together collectively to reach that impact does that make sense yeah it does and i think it's so important in the sort of non-profit environment or, or you know a, a let's call it a for good environment um that you do have that clarity around what the impact mission is because then you can say either i love this mission and i want to dedicate my time effort energy to it or actually it's not for me 
Um, and I think that's so important when you're working in a passion economy uh, to have that clarity. So it makes a lot of sense. Another interesting thing you mentioned is um, founder psychology, let's say, the ability to learn and to listen. Because what I always find fascinating is, you know, as a, a founder, you need to have a lot of confidence. You need to have confidence. But confidence is different from arrogance. Um, and, you know, ego is a big part of that difference and, and how you look at other people is a big part of that difference. But something which we all surely can accept is the amount of potential catastrophic problems that a startup could have over its lifetime is probably a couple hundred, right? There are a lot of them out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of them out there. So the idea that you can learn it all yourself I don't know why you think you have 100 goes, right? And yes, maybe you can avoid 95 of them, but you're going to hit some of them. So the idea of saying, well, I don't need to listen to anyone else. I don't need to learn from anyone else. I'll figure it out myself when there are hundreds of, of catastrophic incidents waiting to happen. It's, it makes, it's no surprise to me that you don't want to work with people like that because it's basically, you know, they've set themselves up for failure. You know, and I think that the really interesting thing for me, and, and I've, you know, one of my passions for the last 20 plus years has been human psychology. Mm -hmm. We discussed this in depth, yeah. We did. Um, when you have somebody that does not appear to be coachable, for me, it flags up that they've got a fixed mindset, mm -hmm. which you know, is I already have the skills or the knowledge that I need and that it's not about having a growth mindset where you approach absolutely everything with curiosity and learning. So I think that the growth mindset is an enormous piece of the puzzle for successful entrepreneurs mm -hmm. because you cannot approach any setback that you have and I'm preaching to the choir here because you've been a successful entrepreneur but you can't approach any setback as a failure mm. it is a learning opportunity and what do I learn from this situation that I can take forward and actually use it as a springboard to my next period of growth and progression and when we see especially in the really early stages that we work with entrepreneurs that fixed mindset of well I don't know how you know I, either I've got everything that I need mm. now to be able to take me forward or I'm not going to listen mm -hmm. That, for me, flags up the fact that they're never going to have the relationship with an investor mm. or an advisory board or whatever going forward because they're, they're, they're not going to be receptive and they'll, they're going to look at the sh their, their, their shortfall in knowledge or experience or expertise as a failure as opposed to, you know, if somebody asks me, you know, do you know how to do xyz and my answer even today is not yet mm -hmm. right you we we learn mm. every single day and when i see entrepreneurs that come into our program and they work with you know the six or seven of us on a core team and i'm seeing an entrepreneur ask every single one of us the same question because they're waiting for a different answer mm. 
because we'll all tell them the same thing. We may we may do it slightly different sure. according to our own subject matter expertise, but we will always be giving them the same direction and the same advice in terms of how to progress their business. Because it's best practice, when right? I then, because it's always best mm. practice, right? The disciplines that you need, the best practices that you have, the skills and competencies you need to develop, they are the same. Yeah. And when I see then somebody going outside of our team to ask a question because they're waiting to hear the, the answer that they want to hear... Mm. It's like, okay, I can't in good conscience tell the next, you know, the next phase, the resources that they may have access to. I can't in good conscience turn around and say, dedicate mm -hmm. all the amount of time and energy and everything else that you can with this person without the caveat of, However, our experience is, mm -hmm. is that they're not as receptive to coaching and advising as we would like them to be. Yeah, and I think it's such an important point as well, because the other key thing which that would be a red flag against is also their ability to hire the right people. Because as we all know, the, the level of ambition that startups have require not brilliant founders, brilliant teams, yeah. right? You know, and, and large teams are yet to scale. If you've got someone who's not willing to hire people smarter than them because yeah. they know everything or, you know, is waiting for that confirmation bias um, to their solutions to problems they might have, then, yeah, you know, they're never going to get beyond a certain point. No, and I, you know, and I think that that's a really, really valid point. You know, I always look to try and hire people who are smarter. Than I, I have to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way that you end up getting mm. a holistically valuable team, um, and and you know, and that's the other thing that we spend time with our founders on is understanding that there are few investment companies who invest in solo founders. Mm. Yeah. They want a team. They want to understand that the collective experience and expertise of a team is going to increase their chances of ROI on any investment that they make. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll 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 say uh, especially as a, a first-time founder, um you know, when I was a first-time founder, even if my me and my co-founder was not the optimal pairing because it's you know rare to get the optimal pairing with anything, um just having a co-founder Especially, as I said, as a first-time founder, it's it's so important. Like you need it, you need that for navigating, soundboarding, all those things. It's it's so 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 key. And I could, for myself as an investor, I would never invest in a first-time founder who's a solo founder. No, one hundred percent. Because you know, it is it is almost impossible to have in one person yeah. all of the skills and the expertise and the experience, and so much of it is about experience, mm -hmm. that actually covers all of those different areas of a business that need to be in place and successful mm -hmm. in a single person. Yeah. And, and you know, and picking your co-founder is imp as important as picking your life partner. Yeah. You end up spending actually more time with your business partner, so, you know, that, that's also one of the things that we spend a great deal of time mm. helping our founders is to actually understand 
what it is that they need to look for because they're not looking for a clone. They shouldn't be looking for a clone of themselves. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting one. And my advice to anyone who's looking for a co-founder, I always say a line on input and a line on outcomes. Input being, if I say we've got to work really hard to make this work, and you say we've got to work really hard to make this work, we might have very different definitions of work really hard. You know, so actually getting very, very clear around what does that mean that we're going to dedicate the next yep. 10 years of our lives to this? What does that actually mean? And ensuring that we're aligned in that. And the other one is then the outcomes as well. So I'll see, for example, and actually I would love to get your view on this considering um, you know where you sit, but my thought has always been, it's very difficult if let's say you've founded something um, solo, you know, you, you've built the idea, maybe started building an MVP, something like that, even though you're further ahead, I still believe that you should be giving a co-founder 50-50 on equity because I think, and I've seen this before, when it starts getting to later stage, you may be looking at like a series B transaction. If you have one founder whose equity at that point is maybe two and a half X, the other founder actually going into, but you know, they've both got a board seat, let's say, then going into a series B negotiation or an exit negotiation where it has very, very different impacts on the different founders can often lead to an impasse. And then, you know, you go back to, well, how good are your founder agreements at the start and all the best practice we give them very early on. But what's your view on how you, you know, dish out equity? How do we do that? Depending on where a founder is in the development of their product, Mm -hmm. we talk to our founder on um, how you earn a over a period of time as a incoming Mm co-founder how you earn a larger slice of the pie Mm -hmm. so it is not that you bring a co-founder in immediately on 50 50 Mm -hmm. because you've already done a great deal potentially you've already done a great deal of work But what you do is you give that incoming co-founder the ability to reach milestones and contributions to the business Mm -hmm. that actually allows them to earn greater and greater share of that pie. Mm -hmm. Understanding that there's going to come a point where you're going outside, potentially for outside capital, where your share of the business collectively as founder and co-founder is going to be a smaller portion mm-hmm. of the pie when you start bringing in investors. But it's actually that division between yes. the co-founders that you've got to get to a point where you've got an equitable mm-hmm. split. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, 50-50 is not equitable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the the blood, sweat and tears... The sweat equity that uh, the original founder has put in is a great deal more than somebody coming mm. in. So I guess it really depends on how far down the road are you, right? Correct. Um, it's a really interesting, it's, and it's such a difficult one. It's why, you know, the obvious, the ideal is obviously naturally, organically finding a co-founder at the start, right? Um, but it's it's... It's such a, a difficult, tricky, and important one to get right. The well, I don't have a co-founder. I need to get one. How do we deal with it? It's a, it's a really interesting. No, one. and it's really interesting because you know, and we work. This is one of the things that we do, and I'm actually working with somebody back in the U.S. at the moment mm-hmm. on this, which is okay. Where are you? Why are you bringing in a co-founder? What? Where is it that you want to get to? 
And along that journey, where are those significant milestones so that you are able to clearly articulate what that deliverable is mm. for that next 5% of equity so that there is a there is a journey, but you are always progressing your business towards that impact mm. and where you are going and you're giving somebody the opportunity of earning their stripes mm. sounds like we're, we're doing dating advice now but how long should you know someone before you know you you become you bring them on as a co-founder what, what does that journey look like for someone so i don't know that it is necessarily that's necessarily time mm -hmm. i think that it is knowledge mm -hmm. about that co-founder so it's kind of it is it's like dating right you would never get to a point at least I don't believe that people would get to a point where they would ask somebody to marry them, you know, four weeks, five weeks down the road, mm -hmm. um, unless you've spent 24-7 with somebody mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. over that period of time. But it's how many different situations have you been in as a pair, mm -hmm. right, as a potential pairing partnership in lots of different environments so that you get to learn about each other. Mm. How many really in-depth questions, to your point, have you asked about what's your vision? What do you see? How mm. are we going to get there? What is, how do you work, right? And, and, and how are you going to be either individually and or as a partnership as you start to grow your business? What do you like as a leader, mm. right? Do your leadership styles complement one another or are they going to be at complete odds? You know, how many different social environments have you been in with this person that you're looking at for your co-founder? I always say to all of our founders, take your potential co-founder out to breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, and other social environments where you, you are going... You should suggest escape room as well. Right? <laughs> where you are going to be around a lot of different people mm. from a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Watch how they treat, especially the wait staff at mm. a restaurant, because that's how they're going to treat your frontline workers as you start to grow your business. And if it's ugly, it's going to be an ugly culture. Mm. And you... You know, if that's not what you want for your business, that's possibly not your right. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so do you um, help people with like psychometric testing? And so do you go down yeah, that I route? Mean, there, yeah, so we do have some of that. Mm. We've also got a 50 question questionnaire nice. that we provide to our co to our founders that are the types of questions mm -hmm. that they should be asking and also answering, mm -hmm. right? So it's a two-way situation yeah, yeah. because the fit has got to work in both directions. So, you know, everything that we learn about leadership and partnership is about being open and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It works exactly the same in business. So be vulnerable and be vulnerable right from the beginning because otherwise you will end up having issues down the road and it's an expensive mistake yeah. if you've got the wrong co-founder. Yes, 100%. And it's it's such a shame. And I think it was YC who, was, um, who, who, who released something on this fairly recently talking about the biggest reasons for startup failures. And I think the number one was co-founder disagreements or founder disagreements. Top two, I think. 
Actually, the number one reason that especially tech startups mm. fail is that there is no market for okay. their product or service. Yeah, and that's about doing customer yeah. discovery. But I will say that team issues are in the, I mean, they're in the top, it's in the top 10. Right. Okay. And a lot of that is founder, co-founder issues uh, yeah, yeah. or issues between the founding team and their investors. Because you have to pick your investors wisely too. You know, it's not about taking the first easy money mm, um, yeah, because absolutely. you may end up coming unstuck with that as well. But, you know, there, there, research has been done. There, are, there is an accepted top 20 reasons why startups fail mm -hmm. in the first five years. Mm -hmm. um, and they are really important because most businesses won't, won't fail for one reason. It'll be multiple reasons and a lot of the reasons are interrelated. Mm. But it's one of the reasons that we pay a lot of attention to that is that the curriculum that we've developed across our three accelerators address and mitigate each one of those nice. failure points so that what we what we're hoping to do is that by the time somebody gets to precede investment that they can actually talk quite articulately mm -hmm. and intelligently about all of the risk mitigation um, initiatives that they have undertaken with their business to be able to increase the chances of success because that's what an investor wants to know. Yeah, love it. We, we could do this for hours. I've got five questions I ask every guest. <laughs> okay. My first one for you, Dawn, is what's the single biggest risk you've ever taken and what was the outcome? Um, I think the single biggest risk I ever took was actually moving to the US, not having visited the city I was asked to move to, had not met the team that I was um, going to lead um, and did it in the space of four weeks. And what was the outcome? Um, well, I guess the <laughs> last 30 something years of my career, um, you know, it's been an absolutely unbelievable journey and I've been honored and privileged to do so many amazing things that I would not have had the opportunity to do if I hadn't have taken that risk. Yeah, amazing. So a risk well worth taking then. Yeah. Love absolutely. that. Okay. All right. My next one for you is what are you proudest of? Being a mom. Nice. And my daughter. That's a great answer. I mean really seriously of all of the things that I've ever done in my life and I have had some really amazing opportunities. The thing I am most proud of is the amazing human being that my daughter is today. And it's been such a privilege and an honor to be her mother. Fantastic, love that, that's a really, really nice one. Is there anything you wish you did differently? Um, is there, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> You know, um, I'm sure that if I went back and thought about some of the decisions that I made without possibly being as well informed mm -hmm. as I should have been. So maybe it were it would have been asking more questions. Um, but I've I have been very open and curious about opportunities mm -hmm. and I think that it's led it, it's led for me to be able to have a very eclectic career 
that I've learned a great deal about a lot of different industries and ways of being able to do things. But maybe there have been times through my life where I haven't made as good of an informed decision as I should have done by asking more questions. So I've learned over the last 20 plus years, I ask an awful lot of questions. It's not necessarily going to stop me doing things, mm -hmm. but it gives me a better foundation on which to be able to do things. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I guess that's uh, reflected as well in some of the things you're trying to teach at Starter Studio, Yeah. right? Helping people ask questions and using experience to say, well, look, have you considered this angle? Because it's not to say that things won't work out well if you don't, but there's a whole a whole group of things that you need to think about. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting. I did my MBA probably 20 years, close to 20 years ago. And I think the one thing that I learned in the MBA was that you do not have to have all of the answers, mm. but you need to know the questions to ask and who to ask them of. So I think that that's possibly changed the way that I've approached things. So it's kind of like pre-MBA me, I would have asked a whole lot more questions rather than assuming that I knew the answer to some of the things. Interesting, than, interesting. So, yeah. The known unknowns. The known unknowns, yeah. That makes sense, okay. What does it take to be successful? Growth mindset. Always being curious always being willing to learn um, and knowing that you're the l possibly the least intelligent person in the room. <laughs> I think if you actually approach any of those situations, you know, approach a situation like that, mm. when you are in a room of people, even if you are the CEO or the founder of a business, everybody in the room has something that you can learn. They yeah. have something to teach you and just be really open and curious as to what that might be because it could be spontaneously surprising. Yes, 100%. 100%. I think everyone has got something to teach. Yeah. Everyone's got something to teach and you can, you can learn from anyone if you've got that, if you've got that growing mindset. I, my, I just learned from my niece's seven-year-old little boy this weekend who... We were doing a we were doing a quiz and it was all about animals and he knew the answers to two or three questions like really bizarre questions and I'm like see yeah be open to learning from everybody this is it this is it there you go all right Dawn my last one for you is a 15 year old Dawn walks in the room right now what are you going to tell her technology technology technology. I did not realize how lucky I was really early on to have um, access to pretty innovative technology. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, we are never going to be in a world now that doesn't have that doesn't have aspects of technology involved in everything mm -hmm. that we do. So it's incorporate that in everything. Just be open to it. Nice. All right, Dawn, if you want to be found, where can people find you? Um, they can find me through Starter Studio. So www.starterstudio.org, O-R-G, because we're a non-profit. Um, they can also find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Dawn, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thanks. 
Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.